I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 11. As we continue in this season of Lent, uh, we continue to follow different episodes of Jesus as we journey with Jesus in all of the things that he has done and has taught. So I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to John 11. And we'll be looking at 44 verses, which is in part why we're going to read it just in a section at a time. Um, so we won't read the whole thing first, all at once, and go back. We will pray a prayer for illumination, and then I'll read uh, about 17 verses, and then we'll, we'll dwell on that, and then we'll move through into the next, chap- in the next chunk, and so forth. So if, if you uh, get confused why we're doing John 1 through 44, but we stop, fear not, for it is intended. But very similarly to last week's text that Pastor Audrey preached, the the miracle is very short, um, but the story is long. The story builds up to the miracle, which we are going to study this morning. So I invite you to have your Bibles open to John 11. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 44 this morning. But before we come to God's word together, let's pray. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. For we want to see you, Jesus. We want to hear your voice. We need assurance. We need to be challenged and shaken up where we have become complacent. We need to be reminded that you hear our prayers. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts. By your Holy Spirit, may you speak to us today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. John 11, beginning it with verses 1 through 16. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, He stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you were going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. 
And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. This is the word of the Lord, part one. Thanks be to God. Pavel Rezabach. Pavel Rezabach is not a Greek word from this text. Pavel Rezabach is not some Hebrew concept from the Old Testament that's unfurled in the Gospel of John. Pavel Rezabach is not a Latin term of some theological nature. Pavel Rezabach is my friend. Pavel, or Pav as I call him, was an international student at Northwestern College, and I I met him my freshman year, fall semester. He lived in the same dormitory that I did, and when I signed up to be part of a discipleship group through campus ministry, uh, Pav was my assigned discipleship group leader. I was in Pav's group, and I got to know Pavel quite well. He was a great guy to be around. He was uh, both, both just fun and, and interesting from stories he had, uh, just being from a totally different place in the world. Uh, he was also just so strong. Uh, he was part of what brought him to Northwestern was he had a, a scholarship to play football. Uh, he was this funny, strong, uh, fast, both physically fast and quick-witted guy that I got to spend a lot of time with my first semester. Fall semester was great. It was great having Pav as my D group leader, discipleship group leader. The spring semester was a tough one for me for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons that it was hard was because Pav got sick. And eventually he got sick enough that he was hospitalized. And then we started to hear rumors that he wouldn't even be able to come back for the semester. And then following that, people started to say that that Pav wasn't even going to be able to come back next year because he was too sick that he might not be able to play football next year. And if that were the case, he wouldn't have enough scholarship money to come back. All we knew was that Pav was sick. That was all we knew. Groups of people from the dorm would go down and visit him. And then finally, it all made a little bit more sense, but not really, when we learned that Pav had cancer. He was sick, things weren't looking well, and it was confirmed that he would have to go back to the Czech Republic, where he was from, that he was going to have to go back home. And not having anything to do with the scholarship, it was just simply the case that he was too sick to be able to come back to school the next year. There's a lot of things about that that just don't make sense. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does a healthy, bright young man in his early 20s get diagnosed with cancer? Why why do our friends get taken away from us? There's a lot of things that don't make sense. There's a lot of things that don't seem fair about what happens. I can tell you that we prayed for Pav. We did all of the right things. We prayed earnestly. 
You think of verses like saying, where two or more are gathered, you are there. We had 90% of West Hall gathered to pray for Pav. We anointed him with oil on the two days he was back on campus before parting to go back to the Czech Republic. We anointed him with oil and prayed over him. But that spring semester, we didn't see any signs of miraculous healing, only deterioration and advancement of the cancer, and the simple knowledge that our friend was going to go back, to go back home. And we wouldn't see him next year. That doesn't make sense. There's things in this opening chapter of John, in the opening part of John 11, that don't make sense either. Some of them are easier to figure out and explain than others. Like verse 16, what, what on earth is Thomas talking about when he says, let us also go that we may die with him? Well, that verse makes sense if we look back up at verse 8, where the disciples are urging Jesus, saying, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you were going back. So we can make sense of this, that in John 11 verse 16, Thomas is saying, let us follow Jesus even if they're going to stone him. We're going to follow him, even if it means our death. He's not talking about Lazarus having a communicable disease or being contagious. He's talking about following Jesus, even to the end. We who know the Easter story know just how quickly, though, the sheep will be scattered when the shepherd is taken. There's other little things in the chapter that don't make sense, like verse 2 This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That's actually an event that takes place in John 12. But once again, we, the readers, and John, the author, has the advantage of hindsight that he can talk about things that are yet going to happen to give us context. That's a stylistic thing. But other things don't make sense. The thing that doesn't make sense. And if you were one of the disciples with Jesus, not someone who's read the whole chapter of John 11, but if you were right there with Jesus, one thing that wouldn't make sense to any of us is that when he heard, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, what did he do? He stayed where he was for two more days. Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. And yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there for two more days. If you were there with Jesus, if you were Mary or Martha, would that make any sense to you? Why does Jesus not immediately pack up and go? He's healed people before. He can do it again. Why is Jesus not going to be with Lazarus? Why is he not going to lay his hands upon him and heal him that he can be sick no more? Why is Jesus stalling? Have you ever had a moment like that with God? Where you're praying in earnest and you are wondering, why isn't Jesus showing about the things that we prayed for for long amounts of time. When you or someone you love has a chronic illness and they stay on the prayer corner in the bulletin for months or over a year, 
And we pray in earnest, and yet we wonder, why isn't Jesus showing up? When someone we love dies unexpectedly, or when the diagnosis is made clear, or when someone walks away from the faith or disowns themselves from the family, and we pray in earnest, but we are wondering, Jesus, why are you not showing up? It doesn't make sense. Now, the disciples, if they were really keen, would maybe pick up on what Jesus is up to. Because Jesus tells them in verse 4, this sickness will not end in death, although in verse 14 he tells them, Lazarus is dead, which would be once again all the more confusing to them. But in verse 4, once again, this kind of is a bookend between verse 4 and verse 14, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified. And in verse 15, for your sake, you disciples, I am glad I was not there at the, at the bedside of sick Lazarus so that you may believe. Jesus knows what he's up to. He knows what's going to happen. But the disciples don't. They're left with confusion that Jesus seems to be going back and forth. He said it won't end in death, but now Lazarus is dead. He loves his friend. He knows his friend is sick. And it takes two more days before Jesus goes anywhere. Let's pick up again at verse 17 with full knowledge that it's going to get worse before it gets better. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And so many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
Do you notice that Mary and Martha both said the same thing? They both said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. From their perspective, though, Jesus didn't show up in time. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Sometimes the long lists on our prayer lists end, and it didn't appear that Jesus showed up in the way that we were hoping for. And maybe we join with Martha and Mary in that kind of lament where we say, Lord, if you had been here, I can imagine what would have been. But, but Martha adds something else into her conversation with Jesus. She also says, but I know that even now, even now with Lazarus in the tomb for four days, even now God will give you whatever you ask. I like Martha. I think Martha is the type of faith and character and, and, and prayer life that I can identify with. Because you know what she wants, but she's not so bold as to say it directly to Jesus. I know now that God will give you, Jesus, whatever you ask. It's like hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Jesus, I know that if you ask for Lazarus to be raised from the dead, that he will be. But she will not put that into words. She simply recognizes that Jesus has power and authority. Do you ever just not put your honest prayers into words? Because what if you pray for something and it doesn't happen? Isn't it almost easier just to know that God could do something than to pray in earnest for it and risk not having the prayer answered? the way we prayed it. There is comfort in the faith knowing that God will make all things right, that God does have a plan, that God will work all things out. There is comfort in that, and sometimes we stay there because it's more comfortable. Because what if we pray in such a way that we don't see it answered? Or what about just when tragedy strikes unexpectedly and we are left wondering, Jesus... Did you show up? There is faith both in the future that Martha holds, that Martha has deep faith and also can sometimes be a little bit indirect, that she can qualify things. I know that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I know that Jesus will be given whatever he asks the Father for on my behalf. Martha tends to condition things. And some of her faith rests simply in a theoretical future, a future that is real and a future that I share with Martha. I believe, alongside of Martha, in the resurrection at the end of time, that in the last days, Jesus will return and all things will be made new. The crooked paths will be made straight. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the mute will speak, the lame will walk. Every valley shall be filled in. Every hill will be made low. I believe in that kind of future. That Jesus will make all things right. But sometimes it's harder for me to think of how Jesus is at work right now. 
and to pray for that in fullness and earnest. Because what if I'm wrong? What if Martha would have asked Jesus, Lord, raise Lazarus from the dead? And Jesus said, no. What she can rest on is that God will make all things right in the end. This is a concept in theology called apocatastasis. That actually is a theological term, not the name of a friend. If I did have a friend named apocatastasis, I would find their parents and gently slap them for giving such a name. It's the belief that in the end, God will make all things right and new. That all things will work out in some way in the end. It's the clean slate protocol for creation. It's a theoretical future that we can put faith and trust and hope in. But what about praying with Jesus on how he's going to show up right now or noticing the ways in which God is at work even right now? I think Martha's a little bit scared to be honest about what she really wants. Nonetheless, Jesus picks up on Martha's qualified conversations of saying, I know that eventually he'll be risen again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus says to her, not in a future sense, but in a very present and current and real way, in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life, not will be eventually, but right now, here and now, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, here and now, present context. Martha replies with a profession of faith. A profession of faith. Simply saying, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Do you believe this? Martha says, yes, I believe. Did you know that that profession of faith is incredibly central to the Gospel of John? Even in our immediate context, where Mary and Martha have both repeated the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha's profession of faith is in the middle of both of those statements. In the center of that is Martha's profession of faith. But it's not just that. Martha's profession of faith is at the center of John 11 as a whole. It's not the climax of this story. That is yet to come, and it's short. But Martha's profession of faith is the center of the story. Not the climax, but the center. Everything has led up to this, and everything will come from here. But John 11 itself is the center of the gospel of John. There's 10 chapters before it, and there's 10 chapters after it. John 11 is the center of the Gospel of John, and at the center of John 11 is Martha's profession of faith. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Jesus has made self-revelation statements, and people have professed faith in him. But at the center of the Gospel of John is someone making a profession of faith in the face of 
of sure and certain death. In the face of sure and certain death, the reality of mortality, Martha has made a profession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. All of Jesus' miracles, all of his healing has led us to this center point where Martha, in the face of death, professes faith that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. This is the absolute middle of the Gospel of John, symmetrically folded around Martha's profession of faith. Make sure you give credit to Martha because her profession was that important that John wrote this gospel to put it in the middle. For us as Christians, our profession of faith that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that Jesus is the Messiah, that is the center point, not the climax of our lives, but it is the center point. It is the center of belief. It is the foundation on which all of our other theology is built. It is the center point. There's always more to learn. There's always more to grow into. There's more life to be lived and experienced that will change and deepen our relationship with God and also experiences that will challenge our faith. But at the center of it is our profession of faith. Now, several here have gone to some classes that Pastor Audrey taught about profession of faith. There's a lot to learn. There's content, and this is the central core of it. One thing that I take great comfort in with Martha's profession of faith, knowing that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we share her profession of faith, is that profession of faith doesn't guarantee that you're going to get it right every single time afterwards. It just doesn't. Martha is still going to make some mistakes. Martha is going to second-guess Jesus in just a little bit later in the text. But nonetheless, her profession of faith is central. It doesn't mean that we get everything right for the rest of our lives, but it does mean that we have anchored the center point of our theology, the center of the Gospel of John. And that profession of faith is faith and trust and consolation that God is up to something, that God is sovereign, even when nothing makes sense. And it's also the hope and the trust that Jesus is up to something even right here and right now. I should tell you that my friend, Pavel, went home to the Czech Republic with a cancer diagnosis. He was there for a matter of months, and we continued to pray in earnest for him. And he died. He died in his early 20s doesn't make sense. It's not fair. And it does challenge. It does challenge our faith that God is at work and that Jesus was up to something even in the midst of Pav's life. And there's no easy way around that. And if someone tells you there's an easy way around it, they're lying. It's hard. But I do know that our profession of faith remained central, even through times of uncertainty and difficulty and the worst of life's unfairness. I know that Pav loved Jesus. And because we love, because Christ first loved us, 
I also know that Jesus loved Pav. And then I'm reminded of what Jesus said right before Martha offered her profession of faith. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. I believe that you are the one who called my friend Pavel Rezabach to be home with you. I believe that you are at work both here and now, and I also believe that all things will be made right and new. To live in that tension between knowing that God will make all things new and that God is at work right now, in the center of that is our belief, our profession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah. The story continues at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying. Once again, there's people wondering, why didn't Jesus show up? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. My friends, this is a preview of Easter. John 11 as a whole is a preview of Easter. Because just like Peter says that he would never leave Jesus, Thomas said, we'll follow Jesus, even to his death, and everyone will be scattered and left in disbelief and fear. There is someone dead in the tomb, and yet God himself ordered that the stone be moved, that the dead may come out. There was real physical death, and yet God exercised power and dominion and authority over life and death and raised someone up from beyond the grave. This is what we believe. What I am comforted, though, is even in this preview of Easter, even after this profession of faith that is central to the Gospel of John, did you catch Martha still faltering a little bit? Still, like us, like me, this is why I like Martha. She gets it right sometimes, but she falters along the way. Even after she's made profession of faith in Jesus, 
in this theoretical future. When Jesus asks her about something here and now, she falters. When Jesus says, take away the stone, she's like, whoa, hold the phone. He's been dead there for four days. There's a bad odor. This is like Jesus asking them to open the casket after the body's been exhumed. Sometimes it's almost too comfortable just to leave our faith in the future and not think that Jesus might have done something here and now presently. And yet, Jesus did show up. The end of the story bookends the first part of the story where Jesus is telling them that people will believe and that God will be glorified through this, just like the blind man's story. It doesn't seem very fair to Mary and Martha or the blind man that he had to be blind for most of his life until Jesus restored his sight. But Jesus was up to something, and that Jesus did show up. I know one thing that struck me that I learned later about my friend Pavel was that he and his dad were estranged for quite some time. And what we do know is that when he went home, he and his father reconciled. Jesus did show up because Pav is still living today and we will see him again. And we also serve a God of reconciliation that Jesus did show up in the relationship of a father and son, a parent and a child, and brought restoration and healing and redemption. Jesus did show up. Jesus also wept for Lazarus. This is because, once again, we're putting on display that Jesus who is fully divine, fully God, exercises power and dominion and authority over life and death. Jesus, who is fully God, is also fully human. Jesus wept. Jesus felt the type of pain and loss that we feel. Jesus felt the type of pain and loss and longing of all those who were praying. And I think Jesus knew full well what it was like for Mary and Martha to express those words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus knows our hearts and knows full well what it's like to be human, what it's like to be us, and experience that with us. And I know there's prayers that we're going to pray together. There's people we're going to pray for, that it's not going to go the way we wanted it to go. And when it does, we might be a little bit shaken. And I know that Jesus feels our grief because he knows what he's up to and knows that we don't know. And that's hard. But to know that we have a God who identifies with our suffering, with our pain, and does not fault us or blame us or shame us for the longings that we have to see restoration here and now. So my friends... Let's make our profession of faith central. Let's keep petitioning God in all honesty and sincerity with trust in the future that God will make all things new, whatever that looks like, however that works, but not give up the longing in earnest that God will be at work right here, right now. Because John 11 shows us that Jesus, fully divine and fully human, will show Let's pray together. 
Jesus, show up in our lives in the ways that you know that we need, in the ways that maybe only you know that we need. Lord, you exercise power and authority and dominion over life and death, over illness, over sickness. Lord, you reconcile and you redeem. You do all of these things for us, your children, because you love us. Jesus, I ask that you may show up and open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we may see you when you show up among us in all of your glory and splendor, in all of your tenderness of heart and your compassion for us, in all of the ways in which you are divine, in all of the ways in which you are human. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts that we may see you when you show up among us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.